Today I'm continuing a series talking about Paul's secrets to happiness. I've got a list of 20 things that I have identified that were secrets to Paul operating in happiness. And today we're about halfway through this. Let me just say that really, you know, I've entitled this Paul's secrets to happiness, but really there's not a lot of secret to this. He wrote these things in scripture. Primarily, this is a study of the book of Philippians. And we've covered some things that are just life transforming. I encourage you to please get this teaching. But the last thing I was talking about right here is in Philippians chapter 3. And Paul talked about that in the natural, he had all of these things going for him. He was probably the most educated man in the Jewish religion of his day. If he wasn't the most, he was one of the most. He was certainly one of the most zealous Jews that there ever was. He was among the elite. And he was a Roman citizen, which gave him like a dual citizenship and gave him certain rights and privileges that the average Jew didn't have. He persecuted the church. He did all of these things. I mean, Paul had everything going for him. In our modern day terminology, he would have had all of the PhDs and the DDDs and all of the other different degrees. He would have had everything. He would have been the cream of the crop. He graduated signa cum laude and uh, he was just all of these things. He mentioned it. He acknowledged it. But then as he, after he had said these things, he said in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things, but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. This is huge. Paul had taken his focus off of himself and off of his accomplishments and off of all of these natural things, and he had counted everything he had, all of his talents, all of his ability, as dung. You know, that is a polite way of saying manure, or you could substitute other words in there. I mean, it. he just counted it as refuse, something that stinks, something that is bad, something that nobody wants to put on their mantle and look at. That's how much he esteemed all of his stuff. You know, I actually was at a church one time, and this guy ran a Bible school inside of this church. It was associated with a major university, and it gave uh, credit to the people that went through this Bible school and gave them a, a credit that would apply towards any school in the country. And I'm not against that. But anyway, this guy who ran this thing kept hounding me. I was there for like three or four days and he just hounded me about you need to take our course. Because of your life experience and all of the ministry experience, you could do it with, I forgot now the details, but one year's worth of study or something and they could give me a doctorate degree. It would have been an earned doctorate degree. And he said, you need this. And I just kind of brushed him off and no, that's okay. And he just kept after me and, and he would corner me and it got to where I was trying to avoid him. Finally, right before I left, he just got me and he says, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want a doctorate degree? Don't you understand what this would do for you? And he, I wouldn't normally be this way with a person, but he was so pushy that, you know, if a person pushes hard, you sometimes have to push back to maintain your balance. And I just looked at him and I said, the reason I don't want a doctorate degree is because I'd be like you. And I said, I don't want to be like you. 
I said, you're all into your accomplishments. You've spent all week long telling me how awesome you are and what your doctorate degree has done for you. And I said, you hadn't talked to me about Jesus any at all. And I said, I don't want to be like you. And I know that's offensive to some people. I'm not against people. I've got friends with doctorate degrees, but the people who have doctorate degrees that I like are the ones that don't sit there and promote it. They aren't the ones that sit there and browbeat somebody else and talk about their accomplishments. See, this is the antithesis of what Paul is saying. Paul had all of the degrees. He had all of the credentials. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it might open a door for you. I'm not against anybody who has it. But I'm saying that Paul had all of these things and yet he counted them but dung. He quit trusting in that. And he found out that knowing Jesus and having personal relationship with Jesus is where his strength came from. That's where his life came from. His source of joy and happiness was in Jesus and not in himself. And I just can't tell you how important this is. Even if you are one of those people that have so many talents and so much ability and you're so intellectual that you are just awesome on your own, I can guarantee you, you will come to the end of yourself. You will fail. You will make a mistake. And if your joy is tied up in you and in your great accomplishments, when you fail, then you know what? You are going to crash and burn. You're, you're just going to fall apart. Because it's all about you. In a way, it's a blessing to be like me that doesn't have all these natural talents and abilities. If it wasn't for Jesus and what He has done in my life, I guarantee you I couldn't go, go across the street. I just don't have any natural things on my own, but it's a blessing in a way because it's made me depend upon Him. And I didn't have anything in the flesh to depend on. I don't have any degrees. God told me to quit school when I was in my first year of college and I don't have any degrees. I don't have any of these things and it makes me dependent upon God. This is basically the point that's behind what the Lord was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 30 and it says you see your calling brethren and not many mighty are called not many wise not many not many of all of the people that we call the movers and the shakers but God chose the foolish things of the world and base things of the world, things that are despised, things that are not to bring to naught things that are. It's like God was putting out a sign saying, help wanted, and then he lists the qualifications. If you're base, if you're weak, if you're despised, if you're nothing, apply within. And you know what? There's a lot of people that wouldn't apply for a job like that because that's not me. I'm awesome. God just doesn't know who he's getting. If you look at things from God's standpoint, God is so infinitely higher than us. His way of thinking, His love, His power, everything about God is just superhuman. And the very best human at His very best, I mean, if you are the smartest person alive on the earth today, if you're the most talented, if you're the most beautiful, if you're the most gifted, whatever you've got in the natural, compared to God, you don't qualify. If God was to accept us based on our own merit and our own ability, nobody would ever be used. God has never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. And so God chose, chose the base things, weak things, things that are despised, things that are not to, bring to not to bring to nothing things that are. Why did God choose people like that? 
because it goes on to say that no flesh should glory in His presence. The reason God set it up this way, that He doesn't take the best of everything. Instead, He takes the people who seem to have a deficit in all of these areas and calls you to do something that is beyond yourself. The reason He does that is because you're, you say, God, I can't do this on my own. And that's absolutely true. And the truth is, the person who's the smartest, the best talented, the best looking, they can't do it on their own either, but they think they can so God just chooses the people that, he, that know that they can't do it. And that makes them dependent upon Him. And then God flows through you in a supernatural ability and enables you to do things that you can't do on your own. Man, that's a great place to be. That's awesome. There are some of you who you may feel like God has called you to do something, but you feel inadequate and so you've held back thinking, God, I, I know that this is what you want me to do, but I just can't do it. You know what? As far as that goes, that's good. It's good that you recognize that you are inadequate. That's what Paul was saying right here, that he didn't have any confidence in his flesh. It's good to recognize that you can't do what God has led you to do, as long as you don't stop there. And you go on to say, like in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. Not, I can do all things but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As long as your inadequacy drives you to dependence upon God, that is awesome. And that's what Paul is trying to express right here. He had all of the credentials. Paul would have made us look pitiful. I mean, this guy could speak multiple languages. I was just recently with a friend who uh, lives in Norway, and they speak six languages fluently. I can just barely speak English. If you include tongues, I can speak two languages. But I mean, I j I'm intimidated sometimes around these people that are just, it seems like they've got talents and abilities in every area. And yet God called me. There's people that are more talented than I am, but I think that the reason God does this, I know the reason God does this according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is so that no flesh would glory in Him. It all comes down to what Paul was saying right here about not putting confidence in yourself. My confidence truly is not in myself. My confidence is in the Lord. You know, I heard Catherine Kuhlman. Some of you may not know who she was, but she was a lady that had a ministry, saw great miracles of healing and stuff. And I heard Catherine Kuhlman talk about how that she was so fearful to have a healing ministry and stand up there and proclaim that God was going to heal. She was so afraid that, you know, it wouldn't work. And she said that if it ever got to where God didn't move miraculously in her services, that she would die because she could not do what God had called her to do without His power. And I don't know all of the details, but a friend of mine was at the service in Jerusalem when she was holding a big conference with thousands of people there. She got up and ministered and nothing happened. Matter of fact, another minister had to stand up and take over and start calling out healings and take over the service because it just fell flat and nothing happened. Prior to that, she saw healings every single time. I was in her services many times, and there was miraculous healings. But this time, nothing happened. And guess what? She died that afternoon in Jerusalem. And I'm sure that the doctors ascribed a heart attack or a stroke or something to it. But by her own admission, if it ever turned out that God didn't show up, 
she was through because she could not do it on her own. Now, that may not be totally correct. There may have been a, some wrong thinking someplace, but the bottom line is she was 100% dependent upon God. And because of that, God did great miracles through her. And I'm telling you, this is a secret to happiness. Paul was not trusting in himself. It wasn't about his ability. He wasn't taking uh, pleasure and getting his ego fed through his great accomplishments. His total source of joy and happiness was in his personal relationship with God. So it didn't matter if he was out there and drawing thousands of people and seeing people raised from the dead and miracles happen. He didn't take glory in those things. It was all his personal relationship with the Lord that kept him from being swelled up with pride and getting into problem. And if he was in prison where he couldn't reach the multitudes and nobody was listening to him and it looked like he was just shut up and stymied and his heart's desire, his ministry calling was not fulfilled, he was still happy because it wasn't about what he was accomplishing. Boy, this is powerful. In the first part of Philippians chapter 3, Paul made a number of statements. Again, I've already covered this, but Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. In verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now that is a huge statement. And again, this is linked with the previous verse. It is not a new sentence. It's the same sentence. It's just in a different verse. And so the benefit, here's what he's doing. It's not that he is just disesteeming everything in this natural life and saying it's worth nothing. It's this relative, comparative statement. In the eighth verse, he says, everything that I gained, I count it but done compared to, and then verse 9 talks about being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is through the faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And this is a critical, critical point. If you are ever going to attain true happiness, I believe that this is truly one of Paul's main secrets, and that is that his confidence was not in himself and his own accomplishments. It was in Christ. It was, it was being found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, which is through the... Uh, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. In other words, when it says having my own righteousness, which is the law, this is talking about his own accomplishments. Again, you may be better than most people. You may live a holier life than most people. You know, I can truly say that I'm now 65 years old. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've lived a super holy life compared to most people. But the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I may be better than some of you. I may not have done some of the things that you have done, but there isn't a hell number two or a hell number three. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if I was to stand before God based on my righteousness, which is of the law, based on my performance based upon the way I've acted, my own holiness, if that's how I approach God, then I would be sent straight to hell. 
even though I may have lived a relatively good life compared to you. But look at that verse again in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is talking about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, many other scriptures talk about that Jesus is the express image of His glory. And so it says we've sinned and come short of Jesus. God's standard isn't relative to the way our society is. This is a major mistake that most people make. They think that God is going to judge us compared to other people. And so they look around and they see basically kind of where the average morality is and they think as long as I'm at least average or just a little bit better relative to everybody else, then surely God's going to accept me. That is not what the Bible teaches. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which is Jesus. You aren't as pure and as holy as Jesus. And if you are trusting in your own goodness and your own performance, then you have to be every bit as holy and righteous as Jesus is or you get rejected. That's the standard that God is using. And if, if you're listening to what I'm saying, some of you are saying, well, I can't live up to that. You're right. And that's the reason that instead of approaching God based on a works righteousness, based on your goodness and your holiness, you have to approach God based on faith in Jesus. Jesus lived holy for you. Jesus obtained right standing with God through His holiness and He is offering you His holiness by nothing but just your faith and acceptance of Him as your Savior. And if you do that, then His righteousness is imputed unto you. And see, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He wanted to be found in Him, not in Himself, but in Christ, uh, not having His own righteousness, which is the law. That's talking about personal holiness, but that which is through the faith of Christ. Man, I could spend an hour on this, but let me just mention this and I'll move on. But it's not talking about just faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ. It is true that we put faith in Christ as our Savior, but when you do that, God literally gives you the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got an entire teaching on this entitled, The Faith of God. And you have His faith imputed unto you. And you literally have His righteousness, His holiness, all of God's goodness. And from that time on, once you make Jesus your Lord, you stand before God in Christ. And God sees you as righteous and as holy and as pure as Jesus is, not because of your own righteousness, which is of the law, but because of you putting faith in Christ. And then His faith, His righteousness, His holiness becomes yours. And God sees you as holy and pure as Jesus is. Man, those are huge statements. And it says, the righteousness which is of God by faith. There is a faith righteousness and there is a works righteousness. The Old Testament law was a works righteousness. It commanded you to do this and this and this. And if you didn't do it, well, then there was judgment and there was punishment. And sadly, the New Testament church has not been living in the New Testament. They have been still administering and living by the Old Testament law and trying to approach God on the basis of their own goodness. Some of you may say, oh, no, that's not true. But th this is the reason that you feel condemnation. 
The word condemnation, you could be defined in many different ways, but you know, the simple way of understanding it, in the United States, they condemn buildings. And if they say this building is condemned, what that means, it's not fit for use. It's unstable. And they will rope it off. And you can't go in there. It's not fit for use. That is a simple layman's definition of what condemnation is. Just feeling unfit for use, unworthy. How could God ever bless me? If you have that, it's because you are under the old covenant work righteousness instead of faith righteousness that's in the New Testament. You are still relating to God based on your own goodness. And again, you may be better than most people, but your own conscience will be condemning you and showing you that you're never what you're supposed to be. Again, I've lived holier than most of you. I'm not saying that to brag on myself. I'm just saying that some of you are trying to obtain this place to where you don't go out and dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. You're trying to overcome this lust, overcome this temptation. I've lived a way that most of you would love to come up to that standard and be living where I am. And I'm telling you that my heart still condemns me anytime I take my eyes off of Jesus and I start looking at my own self and saying, Andrew, you are awesome. Man, you are doing so good. You are really living well. Anytime I do that, my own heart condemns me and I go to feeling unfit for use. And I have to intentionally focus on faith righteousness, not a works righteousness. A righteousness, a right standing that comes from God by putting faith in what Jesus did for me and not what I do for Him. This was one of Paul's secrets of happiness that I tell you, it has liberated me. I don't do this perfectly, but I do it much better than I used to. I'm getting more and more aware that God deals with me based on who I am in Christ and not my physical flesh, not my actions. It's not a righteousness which is of the law, but it is a righteousness which came by putting faith in what Jesus has done for me, not what I do for Him. And I tell you, when I do that, it has given me so much joy and happiness, just like what we're talking about right here. See, if you are a person who is saying, God, I'm going to overcome this problem. I'm going to live holy. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do these things. And then I know that you will love me. That is a works righteousness. What you need to do is just rest and just say, Father, I am going to improve. I want to improve so that I could be a better testimony for you, so that I can limit Satan's access to me. I think it is important to be holy. But you basically come to a place where you say, Father, I don't have to do anything to make myself worthy of having a relationship with you. I just put faith in Jesus and His love that was extended to me. Jesus paid my debt. Jesus not only paid for my sins, but He also gave me His righteousness. Just like this says, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You can put this together with verses like 2 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, For He made Him, talking about God the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus not only took my sin and my punishment for that sin, but He also turned around and gave me His righteousness. I am the righteousness of God. 
I don't have a little bit of righteousness from God. I am the righteousness of God. I'm as righteous and holy and pure in my born-again spirit as Jesus is because it is His Spirit that entered into me. Galatians chapter 4 says uh, He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, then you aren't truly born again. You aren't a Christian. I don't care if you go to church. I don't care what you look like, what you profess, what you say. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you haven't been born again. If you do have the Spirit of Christ, then you are as righteous as Jesus is. Jesus, when you receive salvation, that Spirit is sealed and it remains holy and pure. And John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is looking at his children, his believers in the spirit. And in the spirit, you are as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, as he is, speaking of Jesus, so are we in this World, Not so are we going to be in the next world, but so are we in this world. The only way to understand that verse is it's not talking about your physical body, your actions. It's not talking about your soul, your mental, emotional part because we fail in those areas. But in your spirit, you're as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. And this was one of Paul's secrets to happiness. He quit relating to God based on His performance and instead related to God based on His acceptance of what Jesus had done for Him. Man, I could just preach on that forever. And like I said, most people are ignorant of this. But he goes on to say in verse 10, after he's talking about having the righteousness which is of God by faith, in verse 10 he says, "...that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection..." and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So in verse 10, see the reason I wanted to read these three verses together is because it all, all of these things connect. You have to first of all have a relative disdain for all of your accomplishments. This doesn't mean that you don't value what people accomplish and you don't value the good things that God has sent your way and be thankful for them and remember them. But in comparison to Jesus, there has to be this relative uh, devaluing of all of your accomplishments and your good works so that you stand in what Christ has done for you and not in yourself. That you never get into bragging and uh, approaching God, talking about, God, you are so fortunate to have someone like me. I am so good. I am so holy. The moment you do that, Satan has got you. Because I don't care how good you are, you aren't perfect. And Satan is a master of pointing out your failures. There will always be something that you do wrong. You know, I think I've used this example already, but a classic example of this in my life was before I was really established in a faith righteousness and I was still thinking I had to do something to earn God's favor and pleasure. I remember one day, this is before I was married, I got up and I just determined I was going to fast and pray and study the Word all day. And I read Mark 
all the way through Revelation. I didn't read Matthew, but I read all 25 of the uh, New Testament books, excluding Matthew. So there's 26 books in the New Testament. And anyway, I spent like 16 hours or something doing that. And at the end of the day, I was just so pleased with myself and thinking, God, you must be pleased with me. You must you must really like the fact that I just sat here and studied the Word all day long and read, you know, all of these pages. And I was just, I was in my works righteousness. I was feeling good about what I did. And you know what? All of a sudden the thought came to me, you were up 17 hours. You only spent 16 hours studying the Word. You wasted one hour. And, um, and instead of rejoicing and having joy... I was condemned. And I know some of you think, that is weird. But I'm telling you, this is the way that religion is. This is the way that when you're trying to trust in your own goodness, you'll never be good enough. Some of you are under the deception of thinking that as soon as you overcome this problem and this problem and this problem and you don't do this anymore, then you're going to experience this joy and have this wonderful relationship with God. I'm telling you, as long as you are standing in a works righteousness instead of a faith in Jesus' righteousness, as long as you are trying to have right relationship with God based on your actions instead of just receiving God's love as a gift through what Jesus did for you, then you are going to fail because you are never going to be perfect. You'll always come short. And see, that story I just related to you is a classic example in my life that it doesn't matter how much you do. If you spend 16 hours studying the Word a day, you were up 17. You could have done more. And if you spend 17 hours studying the Word, well, then you could have got up an hour earlier and have spent 18 and you could have just prayed all night long and you could have, and there's no end to you trying to do enough. I'm telling you, that is not the way that the Bible teaches to have a relationship with God. The Old Testament law did prescribe that you have to do all of these things, but the real reason that was given was to show you that you can't live up to this standard. It lifted the standard so high that it made you despair of self-righteousness and drove you to your knees so that you would call out to God for mercy. And I've taught on this many, many times. I've got so many teachings that cover that same thing. But that's what verse 9 is talking about. And the reason that you have to not trust in your own self-righteousness, instead you have to have this faith righteousness that comes by putting faith in what Jesus has done for you. In verse 10, the benefit of that, the goal of that is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. And let me make some statements right here that at first may, some of you may disagree with this, but it's absolutely true that you can't know God. I'm talking about knowing Him, not knowing about Him, not tell somebody something you've heard somebody else say about Him, but I'm talking about you having your own personal relationship with God, knowing Him the way that the Scripture talks about knowing. You know, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bare a son. In the Bible, the word know is talking about intimacy, personal relationship, not just hearing, you know, repeating something, parroting something that someone else has said. But you can't know God in this intimate way if you are approaching God based on your goodness, based on your holiness, based on all of the things that you have done. 
you are trying to be good enough for God to love. And you can. And yet we, we think that, God, if I'm just better than this person, now you're going to love me. Compared to what God created all of us to be, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, which is Jesus. None of us can stand before God based on our own goodness. Your own heart will condemn you. And if God was to truly relate to you based on what you deserve, every one of us would be rejected by God. Every one of us. Some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, no, you don't know me. I'm saying you don't know God. You've never seen the real holiness of God. You've come short of what God's holiness is. And the Old Testament law was given to raise the standard and to make God's standard of holiness so big, so huge, so beyond our ability to attain it that it would make you despair of self-righteousness. Somehow, Satan has twisted and perverted this and religion is the number one thing that is promoting that God is going to relate to you based on your own goodness and holiness. And religion is making people stand in a righteousness that comes by the law, not by faith in what Jesus did. Religion is the number one promoter of that and it is keeping people from knowing Him. If you are going to truly know Him, as it says in Philippians 3.10, you are going to have to count all of your accomplishments like dung, manure, and stand in what Jesus has done for you. If you don't do those two things, if you don't disdain your own accomplishments in a relative sense and exalt Jesus and put faith in Jesus and stand in what Jesus has done for you, you will never obtain intimate relationship with God because you don't deserve it. If you are going to come based on your own goodness, you do not deserve it. And see, again, all of these things flow together. If you don't understand that, if you are still stuck trying to be self-righteous and trust in your own goodness, you are never going to have the joy that God wants you to because you're going to be constantly displeased with yourself. One of the greatest secrets to happiness, which Paul is expressing right here, is that he was standing by faith in what Jesus has done, and this gave him the ability to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And I want to expand a little bit more on this. He says that I may know Him. One of the secrets of Paul to true happiness was that he had a personal, close, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just can't overstress this. I think that today, this is based on my personal interaction with, you know, thousands and thousands of people. I believe that the majority of people have a knowledge of God. They live by sets of principles and rules, which I'm not saying that there isn't a place for principles and rules. But the main thing about Christianity that sets true Christianity apart from any other religion of the world is the fact that it's all about a personal relationship with a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you know Him on a personal level, it's different than having a relationship with rules and regulations and laws and dogmas. It's all about a person. And I can tell you from my own personal experience 
that there have been times when everything in my life went bad. We've had some bad things happen to us. And yet in those times, because I had a personal relationship with God, you know what? It, was, it wasn't like, all right, what am I supposed to do now? And I'm just going to, you know, by uh, rote, because of these are the principles that I've got to do this now. I've got to do this and I've got to do this. It wasn't like that. I had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And because of that personal relationship, God was there. I wasn't by myself. You know, I got drafted and I got sent to Vietnam. And in Vietnam, uh, I was sometimes the only Christian that was around. Most of the time I was made fun of. I was rejected for not going out and doing the drugs and doing the things that the other people did and stuff. And I was pretty much totally by myself. And, uh, but I wasn't by myself because I had a personal relationship with Jesus. And the Lord was with me. And the Lord personally ministered to me. And I know some of you think, hey, that's just in your own mind. It's not, it's, it's not true. I guarantee you, I've had a personal relationship with the Lord and it is my personal relationship with Him that makes a difference. I personally do not understand any Christian talking about being lonely. Because if you have a personal relationship with the Lord, the Holy Spirit will comfort you. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in all of your tribulations so that you can comfort others. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, I think five or six times in John 14, 15, and 16. That is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. God is personal. And you can have a personal relationship with Him. And this is far beyond any religious person that just has a doctrine and a creed that they're trying to live by. You know, I've had people come to my house before and knock on the door and they want to evangelize me. I'm not going to mention what group. Many of you probably know who I'm talking about. But I've had them come with their doctrines and with their creeds and they are taught how to argue points and how to do all of these things. And they come in, you know, attacking you and trying to convert you and to do all of these things. And, um, but the thing that just makes it different for me is I have a personal relationship. You can't talk me out of something that I am in constant communion with the Lord over. And these people, they have a doctrine, but every time what I try and do, I try and turn it to this personal relationship. Do you really know God? Does God speak to you? Does, does God minister to you? And you know what? When you bring it down to a personal relationship, these people who are so dogmatic and so forceful, you can just totally disarm them because they don't have a personal relationship with God. They've got a doctrine. They've been schooled and taught on how to argue points. They might can win an argument but they can't win this relational thing. When I was in Vietnam, I was actually holding a Bible study one time and I had about six or seven guys in this Bible study. I was using the chapel and uh, there was a guy that walked in who was a real intellectual. He listened to me for a few minutes and then he just began to pick apart everything I was saying. He asked these questions that since then I've now got an answer. I could answer him now, but back then I was relatively new in the Lord and I didn't understand how to answer all of these questions. And the guy just out-argued me and made a fool out of me. But I kept telling him, I said, he, he was an atheist. He didn't believe that there was a God. And he just mocked me and began to criticize things. 
But I kept telling him, I said, you can't tell me there's not a guy because I talked to him today. I said, he talks to me. He's with me. I said, how can I doubt that he's with me when he's with me? I had a personal relationship. And anyway, this guy just made a fool out of me and he got up and mocked me and walked out. And the entire Bible study, these six guys that were there to have me, you know, lead a Bible study, they left with the atheist. And I was just sitting there feeling like a total failure. God, what could I have done differently? But you know, I never doubted the existence of God because I know Him. I wish I had better words to describe this. But there are people that can be talked out of their belief in God, belief in morality. Everything is relative. It's rules. It's regulations to them. That's because they don't know Him personally. They have never personally encountered Him. If you ever personally encounter God, you will never doubt that He exists. And if you really continue to this relationship and get to where you truly know God, you'll never doubt that He's a good God. You'll not fall for all the lies and the deceptions and the people things that people say about Him. So anyway, I was still praying to this God that this atheist said wasn't there because I knew Him. And I was fellowshipping with the Lord. And within 30 minutes or so, this atheist walks back in and sits down. And I was praying, oh God, give me another chance. Help me to somehow or another reach this guy. And this atheist comes over to me and he says, I want what you have. And I was shocked because I thought this guy just made a fool of me. All of the people that were there went with him, sided with him and left. And yet he came in and said he wanted what I had. And I said, well, why? And he says, because I just made a fool of you. He says, my whole life is built on an argument. I have an intellectual uh, stance that I've adopted. But he says, I just made a fool of you. If somebody was to do to me what I just did to you, he says, I'd kill myself because my whole life is built upon this argument. But he says, you've got something that goes beyond an argument. You've got a personal relationship with God, and I want that. And I got to lead this guy to the Lord and pray with him so that he could be born again. See, this is an example of what I'm trying to talk about is Paul was saying that he counted everything but loss, not because somebody preached this to him and he thought that this was the right thing to do and so he did it out of a sense of obligation or debt. It was because he had encountered a real person. If you aren't familiar with the story of Paul in Acts the ninth chapter, it talks about how he was going out and persecuting Christians and he, was, he went to Damascus to bind them and to bring them back to Jerusalem and actually witness against them and put them to death. And on his way there, there was this blinding light brighter than the noonday sun. It knocked him to the ground and a voice came out of heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Talking about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God had been convicting him since he saw Stephen stoned to death. And Paul was a part of that crowd that stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament. Uh, Paul was a part of that group. And Paul consented, but it says that God had pricked his heart. He saw Stephen turn around and ask God to forgive the very people who were stoning him to death. And he saw a love. He saw a relationship that went beyond just this religious stuff that Paul had. And so anyway, the Lord spoke to him and he began this relationship with God. And that's what Paul, that's what motivated Paul, see, to give up 
and count all of his great accomplishments but dung and not to trust in his own self-righteousness, which is of the law, but a righteousness which comes to fa- through faith. All of this was done so that he could know him. It was all about relationship with God. And I'm telling you, there's people who you don't doubt the existence of God. And you may be following all of the rules and the regulations. But rules and regulations, even though there's a place for that, and I'm not saying that we just ignore standards that the Bible teaches. But I'm saying I don't have relationship with standards. I have a relationship with a person. I know Jesus personally. I talk to him. He talks to me. And this is what true Christianity is about. And see, you could, you could deal with any cult. You could deal with any other religion. And if you just kept peeling back the layers... This is the core of what sets true Christianity apart is that we don't have just our Christian set of principles and our Christian religion and our Christian morals versus a Muslim morals, a Hindu morals, a Buddhist morals, uh, all of these kind of things. No, we have a personal relationship with God Almighty. We call Him Father. He is a personal Lord. He loves us. We are His children. And this is what sets true Christianity apart. Just what Paul said, that I might know Him. Know Him not just in an intellectual sense, but in an experiential sense. You know, over in Ephesians chapter 3, let me just read this passage quickly. Paul prayed a prayer and he said that the Lord would grant you, this is Ephesians chapter 3 verse 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Not Again, not a set of rules and principles, but a person. Christians are literally God-possessed. A person, a real person, lives inside of me, inside of true born-again people, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice the terminology in verse 19, that you may know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. That sounds like a contradiction. If it passes knowledge, then how are you going to know it? These are two different words for know. It's not talking about a mental Knowing. It's talking about an experiential, a personal, intimate relationship with God which passes just intellectual acknowledgement. And the results of knowing Him in this personal way is that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. True Christianity is having a personal relationship with God. And if you don't have this personal relationship with God, I don't care if you go to church. I don't care if you've called yourself a Christian your whole life. You need to just open up your heart and say, God, I want to know you. Just like what Paul said right here. Not in my own self. Not based on my performance. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Not through a righteousness which is of the law, but a faith righteousness. A righteousness that's through you. I want to know you experientially. I want you to reveal yourself to me. Lord, speak to me. If you would pray that, if you would make it about knowing Him, 
You have to understand that you can't know Him based on you approaching Him and saying, God, I know you uh, think I'm awesome, so reveal yourself to me because you owe it to me. No, you have to humble yourself and say, I'm not coming based on my own merit. I'm standing here based on what Jesus did for me because of His mercy and grace. I'm asking you to reveal yourself. And if you will do that, God wants to reveal Himself to you more than you want Him to reveal Himself to you. I can promise you that. But I think that many times the goal to most people is to miss hell and not go to hell. And, you know, you want to live in eternity. You want to live a relatively righteous life so that you won't get into trouble, so that God will answer your prayers. It's all about getting these things. And we've missed the true goal. The true goal isn't going to heaven, although that's wonderful. It's not missing hell, which although that's wonderful. It's not getting your prayers answered and being healed and delivered and prospered, although those things are wonderful. The true goal of Christianity is to know Christ, to have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. And if you establish this personal relationship with the Lord, it will sustain you. That's my testimony. I've been through some hard things. And I've been through things that I can guarantee you in the natural, it would have broken me. It, I just would have given up. But I couldn't because I had a person with me. I had God with me. It's not just a set of rules and standards. But I had a person that personally encourages me, that speaks to me, that tells me things. All of the other religions say you can't do that. If you peel back the layers and talk to them, they can have their dogmas. But boy, you go to talking about that God loves me. God has done this in my life. God spoke this to me. God showed me this. God, And you start talking about your personal relationship, it just silences all of the critics. If you try and talk to people based on doctrine, I remember T.L. Osborne saying he was telling people, well, this Bible says, and he was just, you know, hammering the Bible. Well, they opened up their black book, the Quran, and began to say, well, this says, and what makes your black book better than my black book? But basically, he began to start demonstrating a personal relationship. He started showing the supernatural power of God, seeing blind eyes open, deaf ears open. Other religions, he can't do that. They don't know him and the power of his resurrection. True Christianity is all about personal relationship with God. And I'm telling you, this is what so many people are missing today. Even some people who've been born again and are truly saved and have God living on the inside of them, they don't enjoy the benefits of that relationship because they're under so much condemnation. They are still trusting in their own self-righteousness and they're condemned knowing that they fail. But you can go beyond that and you can just appropriate this intimate relationship with God, not based on your performance, but based on what Jesus did. It's a gift. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's not something to be earned. It's not a paycheck. It's a gift. And you can just appropriate it by faith. Again, I could just continue to minister about this because this is really missing in most religion today, even most Christian quote-unquote religion is just preaching rules and regulations. And like I said, people go through life not even knowing what God's will for their life is when it's a command in Ephesians chapter 5. Don't be ignorant, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. 
It says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It tells you very clearly how to hear from God, how to know His will. And yet most people just don't take advantage of this. We don't have this intimacy with the Lord. We don't listen to the Holy Spirit the way we should. And because of it, the average person, even the average Christian is like a blind man just walking along and it's just a matter of time till you trip and fall, fall off a cliff, do something. Because I guarantee you, there's a lot of dangerous things out there. We need to get our eyes open. We need to know what the will of the Lord is. It comes through knowing Him. Let me go on down in verse uh, 13. Here's another secret that Paul gave us about how he was able to operate in a joy and in a happiness even when he was in prison. He said, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know, another thing that you're going to have to do if you're going to really operate in the true joy and the happiness and the peace that God wants us to have, you're going to have to be able to put things behind you. You're going to have to forget the things that are behind, and you're going to have to put a goal in front of you that just consumes you. You have to have something to live for, and you have to have things that you have forsaken and turned away from. You know, I've often heard people take this. that You're just supposed to totally forget all of the past. I don't believe that that's true at all. There are scriptures where we were commanded to make monuments. Matter of fact, all of the feast days that were required in the Old Testament, it was for the purpose of causing you to remember. To remember the day that, you know, the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and the firstborn were slain. To remember and not forget all of these things, the Passover, all of this. God commanded us to remember. In Psalms 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. So I've heard people take this verse and say, we're just supposed to forget everything in the past. No, you're supposed to remember the good. You're supposed to remember the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. Uh, Peter even said over in 2 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 3, he says, I stir you up through putting your, your pure minds up, through putting you in way of remembrance. Memory is a powerful force. And so I don't believe that we are supposed to forget the good things of God. We aren't supposed to forget, you know, uh, people that have been kind to us. We're supposed to be kind and remember that and be gracious to people and all of this. But this is specifically talking about forgetting all of your own accomplishments The when you were in the flesh, when you have done things wrong, and also getting rid of all of that condemnation. You don't live under the condemnation and the guilt of things that you've done in the past. And I believe that Paul was uniquely qualified to say this because, again, some of you may not know this or you may forget, but Paul is a person who persecuted Christians and he arrested them and he beat them and he even gave his consent against their death and he saw Christians put to death in the name of the Lord. He persecuted the very followers that he later became a part of. 
And I can just imagine that Paul had a lot of guilt about this. It's possible that as he traveled and preached the gospel, that he actually came across some of the family members that were left after he had killed their father, their mother, their brother, their sister, husband or wife. Can you imagine the guilt that he probably had to deal with? And I believe that this is what he's talking about. He had to put his past behind him. He had been very zealous and at one time he thought he was doing the right thing, but boy, he had done serious, serious things wrong. Just go back to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts and watch where Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was put to death and Saul consented and actually held the coats of the people who stoned him to death. Saul stood there and saw Stephen die, saw life go out of him. A person who literally, in a sense, became one of the tools that God used to reach the apostle Paul. When the Lord appeared unto him, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And I believe that the first time God pricked his heart and convicted him is as he watched Stephen, this godly man, stand and be stoned to death. And he stood there and said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And he saw the heavens open and he saw Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. In every instance we have in the New Testament, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, showing that his work is over. He's not working and doing things. He's now accomplished it. It's finished. He's seated at the Father's right hand. But when Stephen saw him, he was standing. And I believe that it's Jesus honoring the very first person who gave their life for the cause of Jesus. And he honored him. And Stephen gave this tremendous testimony and spoke these things forth. And boy, it pricked the heart of Saul. Can you imagine after he was converted and became the apostle Paul, can you imagine that that probably came back to him? It's possible that he had dreams and remembered what he had done to Stephen, multiplied thousands of times over to all of the other people that he persecuted. And I believe that these are the kind of things that he was talking about, that he had to forget that. He probably didn't forget the positive testimony of Stephen. He probably remembered that and glorified God for that, but he had to literally forget and recognize that that was another person, that he had become a new person in Christ. Paul is one that wrote that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And I believe that Paul had to make a deliberate effort to distance himself and say, that's not me. That's not me anymore. He had to forget that. He had to see himself in a new way. There are things that you need to forget. And in the same way that it takes effort to remember, it takes effort to forget. But you can't do it. You know, I'm not a perfect example on this. I still am in the process of renewing my mind, but I have just chosen to forget people who have done things to me. I had this one guy who accused me of stealing money, committing adultery, doing dope, getting drunk. He lied about me, did all this. I confronted him. And yet the next week I went by his business. I stopped to talk to him and I had forgotten the confrontation that we had had. I'd forgotten the things that he had been doing because I forgave him. And I can forget. I, can, I have a supernatural ability to forget and to not hold things against people because I believe that that's the way that God wants us to be. 
And man, that is powerful. There's a lot of good things I could say about that. I want to focus on this 12th thing that I've identified as one of Paul's secrets right here in verse 13. He says, this one thing I do. I think that a real secret to happiness is learning how to do just one thing. Now that is really simple, but I think that that's profound. You know, we had the guy who helped me start our Bible college, Linus Lefevre. He was the first director of our Bible college. And he had a saying that has stuck with me. And I believe it to be really true. And that saying, he used to tell the students all the time, he says, if you want to kill a man's vision, then give him two. The way to kill your vision, the way to destroy your life is to make you to where you are headed in multiple directions. I believe that every one of us were created by God with a purpose, a singular purpose. You may be able to do multiple things, but God, Paul said this one thing I do. That was one of the keys to his happiness. He wasn't spread so thin that he became ineffective. He found out what God called him to do and that's what he devoted his life to. He pressed towards that mark and his whole life was focused on that. You know, in the beginning of our ministry, Jamie and I didn't have enough money or enough people responding to us that we couldn't do very much. I mean, it was just an effort to survive. We went for decades just struggling. Now our ministry has prospered. We could do all kinds of things. But you know what? I still have the exact same focus. And in the same way that when we didn't have any options, we were just committed to following the Lord, to ministering the Word, to doing what He led me to do. Now that I have other options, I could do things. You know what? I'm still focused on God. I have people come to me all the time and want me to you know, start, start orphanages and do things. You know what? That's a good thing. I'm not against that. I support other people who do this. I, I support a number of people. I support, I, I don't, don't even know right now, but many, many children. I know one program that I support has over 44 children that I support on a monthly basis. Another one has 40 children that I support on a monthly basis. My wife and I have a child that we've supported for, I think, 40, 30 or 40 years. And we support lots of things like that. Those are good things. I give money to those, but that's not what God called me to do. God did not call me to start orphanages. I support it. I help other people. I promote them, but that's not what God called me to do. And I have people come to me and present these opportunities. And if I don't just say, yes, I will do this, well, then they begin to condemn me. Like, well, you know, we're supposed to go visit the fatherless and the widows and things like this. Well, I agree. And I support those and I give money towards that. But that's not what God called me to do. I have people that have tried to get me to start drug rehab programs and to deal with, you know, girls that are taken out of the sex trade and things like that. I support things like that. We just gave $100,000 to a ministry that uh, helps rehabilitate women. And I do things like that. But you know what? That's not what God called me to do. I really believe that for you to reach your full potential, you've got to be focused like a laser the power of a laser lies in the fact that all of that light is concentrated into a little pinpoint. If you diffuse it, it loses its power. But if you concentrate that light, you can literally cut through metal with a laser. 
See, it's the same way with us. You've got to be focused. And I'm going to say something here that I know lots of people are going to disagree. My wife doesn't like this. <laughs> but I don't think all of this multitasking that people are so proud of themselves for being able to multitask, I don't think it's a scriptural principle. Now, again, I'm not saying that you can't do multiple things at one time, but I'm saying to just get to where that is your life and you are just trying to constantly juggle all of these things. It produces stress. It causes all kinds of problems. And it's against what Paul was saying. Paul said this one thing I do. He was focused on one thing. When you multitask and you're proud that you can juggle all of these things, all that means is, in my estimation, which I admit, very few people agree with me on this, but I believe that multitaskers just means you do multiple things poorly. You don't do any of those things as well as you could do as if you were just focused on that one thing. You know, the people that go to the Olympics and that win the gold medal, most of the time they aren't people that compete in all of these different things. They specialize. They focus on one thing and they train specifically for that and that's their goal. And the people who win the gold, the people who are the best, are not multitaskers. They are people who are focused on one thing. You only have one chance to fulfill the perfect will of God for your life. Now, you might be able to do multiple things and you may be so talented that you could be a CEO of a company, you could be an artist, you could be an actor, you could be a doctor, you could be, you, maybe you could do just all kinds of things, but I guarantee you, you will not prosper and be as effective as if you were to just narrow that down to one thing and do one thing with everything you've got. You need to be focused in your life's purpose. And this is what Paul is talking about. And you know, I've just come to grips with this. I understand that I am not the total expression of God to this world. God has given me a very specific assignment of what my part is. And I see other people that are doing things. And I, I, I think, you know, I'm not doing that. But I've just come to grips with God. I'm doing what you've told me to do. And I pray for other people and for their ministries to succeed and for them to reach people and to do these things. And I become a part of it as far as my giving and praying for that. But I stay focused on what God has called me to do. God's number one call on my life is to teach the Word of God. I just did a series recently on making disciples instead of just converts. And I talked about that. And God has given me very specific direction that my goal is to teach the Word of God, to teach believers. And a kind of a subset of that is that the, the way I have to reach the deepest and impact people the most is through product and materials because most people will only watch a television program for you know one day a week or whatever. They don't listen to me every single day. Some do, but not the majority. And so I use this program to kind of give you a taste of something. And then I, these products that we're offering can go deeper, reach you on a stronger level than what just an individual television program can. And then even be, below that is our Karis Bible College, not only our local one in uh, Woodland Park, Colorado, but all of our extension schools all over the world. We are now reaching deep into people's lives and we are seeing people change. And this is my focus is all on the ministry of the Word, teaching of the Word, whether it's through television and radio, whether it's through product, 
materials website or whether it's through the Bible college. And that's my focus. And everything I do is focused on that. I help other people and do things that are good, but that's not my thing. I think that this is one of the keys to truly operating in joy and peace and happiness, and that's finding out what God called you to do and quit trying to be things that God didn't call you to be. You are going to get yourself off target. You're going to get yourself out of your anointing, out of your strength. You will make yourself vulnerable to condemnation and guilt and failure that you wouldn't be if you were to stay in that sweet spot where God called you to be. There is an anointing on doing what God has called you to do. I'm telling you, there. this is a powerful truth. And I think it's one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul was the success that he was. And it's also one of the keys to his happiness is that he didn't try and do everything for everybody. He just did what God led him to do. And today there's pressure on us to try and succeed in all of these different ways. People are trying to just be so productive and we compare ourselves among ourselves and we want to be like this person. I'm telling you, that is a recipe for dissatisfaction, condemnation. You're putting yourself up against somebody else. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that every man will give an account for the things that he's done, whether it's good, uh, that's... Um, Gold, silver, precious stones, it's making a comparison here that if you build in a godly way what God told you to do, it's like having gold, silver, precious stones. If it's your own desires, it's like wood, hay, and stubble. And when we stand before God, every man's work will be tried of what sort it is, not what size it is. That's a huge difference. God is going to find out, did you do what I told you to do? And somebody said, oh, well, I may not have done that, but man, I did this over here. And look at all the recognition and look at the good that I accomplished. You don't evaluate things based on that. If you aren't doing what God told you to do, if you aren't using all of your gifts and talents and everything for God's purpose, then I don't care how good it is in the eyes of the world. If it's, if it's good, that doesn't mean it's God. You've got to find out what God called you to do and you're going to be given an account of what sort it was, not what size it is. And see, if you understood this, it would give you a peace, a joy, and a satisfaction and you could see somebody else doing more than what you're doing, but you'd say, Father, that's just fine. That's not what you called me to do. I'm rejoicing with them. I pray for them, help them, but this is what you called me to do. God doesn't call everybody to do what I'm doing. God doesn't call everybody to do what you're doing. But if each one of us would do what God calls us to do, God can supernaturally place us in the right place. And He can make all of these things work. And we would have an impact that would be awesome if everybody would just do the one thing that God called you to do. What has God created you for? Don't just go by, well, this is good. I think I'll try this. No, what did God make you for? He's going to judge your works of what sort it is, not what size it is. And if you really want to be happy, you need to find what God has called you to do and then just do it. And don't look to the right nor to the left. Just do the one thing. Be focused on one thing. Quit comparing yourself with other people. Do what God called you to do. That is an absolute recipe, secret, 
to happiness is to do what God called you to do and be content with it. Don't think that you can be everything to every person. Don't try and be everybody's savior. Just do what God called you to do. You are not the complete expression of Jesus. No one person is. We are all have our part. And I'm telling you, this is a, a key. I believe it's been a key in my life to just finding contentment that, Father, thank you that you've given me a part to play. Thank you for revealing that part to me. And I'm focused on what God has called me to do. And I'm not intimidated by other people who are doing more. I'm not condemned by those things. I just do what God has called me to do. And I find tremendous joy and satisfaction in just doing that. And someday I'm going to stand and give an answer of what God called me to do, not what He called you to do, and vice versa. I tell you, that's a secret to happiness. Paul, this is a huge statement that Paul made right here. And I tell you, I think it really is applicable to our modern day society. 